As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. You already know when the guest comes back for a third time, you already know it's a shutdown. Welcome back to the Malcolm Effect. To someone I'm honored and proud to call my teacher and my real life friend. Welcome back, Deej. Thank you so much for having me. You always do these like grand introductions and I always get super nervous. Like, oh. <laughs> no, it's true though, honestly. The amount of people were telling me, please bring back Deej, please. I'm like, don't worry, don't worry. You know Deej, yeah, again, she's very difficult to get a hold of. It's not I'm, easy. I have I'm to go. a very difficult person to get a hold of. <laughs> exactly. Now, but thanks for coming back so much. We're going to talk. Always. I have to ask, the discourse moves along so quickly, Deej. So I have to ask you, as a black man, do I have privilege or not? Ah, no. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's so funny because, like, privilege discourse, I think, has come to dominate politics. And I understand why it gives a very simplistic analysis of just how the social relation, how various kind of identities and how various groups are, are organised. But the more you sort of delve into like privilege as a concept, the, the more it mm-hmm. kind of becomes rendered useless, especially okay. in the way which we use it nowadays, right? I think assigning privilege just indiscriminately on particular bodies by virtue of the bodies existing as they are is just incredibly meaningless. And so to the question, mm-hmm. as a black man, do you have privilege? I guess my, my sort of analysis goes, well, it depends. In what context are we speaking, right? In what conditions are we speaking under? Because there are various sort of empirical evidences that tell us that although we come to think of black men within the group of um, of, of sort of like the black community as being the dominant, being the patriarch, there's so much information that's counter to that. And I've had the absolute pleasure this week with engaging with a relatively controversial figure, Dr. Thomas Curry. And it's been interesting for me. And I think I've been on this incredible journey whereby a lot of my ideas, a lot of the way in which I think, especially about the notions of gender and sex, have been incredibly challenged. And that challenge started here, actually. It started with us engaging with Dr. Joy James. It okay. started with Dr. Joy James's articulations of, you know, her own shifts away from a black feminist politic and yep. thinking through what it means to to sort of reimagine a politics of gender. So that's kind of started me on this journey about thinking about gender in, in a more material way, in a more complex way, thinking about gender outside of the sort of a liberal fascination or the liberal feminist fascination with a sort of interactive politics that says that there are two main class antagonisms and that's of womanhood or male um, womanhood or femaleness and manhood or maleness and thinking how like the notion of patriarchy as the sort of large structural antagonism becomes rendered almost just inapplicable when we think about race when we think about imperialism when we think about what it means to be a racialized subject so that's the sort of journey I've been on yeah and it's been no it's it's funny no it's funny you're talking about your journey because again I just put up your tweet and this is what I was going to start today with it wasn't this is um, me quoting you (laughs) it was uncomfortable and felt like everything I knew about gender was in conflict but it was such an important lesson 
When we are guided by the materiality, we engage in truth beyond mystification. What was going through your head when you wrote that? Well, I was thinking about just how, so I I was probably, like, I've always called myself like a Marxist. I've always been sort of Marxist adjacent. I've always been a socialist, all those things kind of since my sort of political introduction when I was around 16. But beyond that and before that, I was a feminist, right? I was Mm -hmm. raised to think about myself as, a woman who was liberated and empowered, who, you know, had features of strength and wanted to engage in a politics that liberated all women because women and the oppression that women face was the primary, primary, primary locus for all the pain and suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. And it became, and I guess I was sort of like, just that was just part of the tradition in which I was brought up in. That was my scholarly tradition. Much of my work was focused initially on black girls and on intimate partner violence, because I had Mm. taken in this idea that violence the women experience was simply the condition of the fact that men existed in the world right and so that had been the politics that had basically grounded me and over the last year I began to think more critically open my mind a little bit more and I think more so than anything I began talking to men men that I'm friends with men that I care about men that are in my family and thinking through Mm -hmm. their experiences I think back to last year when my little brother he's he's 13 at the time actually was basically like robbed in front of my mum's flat at 13 years old a bunch of boys beat him up threatened him with a knife and that was an experience that he had and I started to think about well I grew up in a community where that's such a normalized part of your existence right like black boys Mm -hmm. expect violence and then I thought about well as a woman I've always thought of like being on the streets walking home at night all of that things as things that I fear because I'm a woman but I know Mm -hmm. so many young boys who have those same fears yeah yeah And they're not articulated as such. They're not oftentimes understood as such. But what does it mean to be 13, to be 14? And by virtue, and it's important to recognise this, that intersection of your manhood and your race and your class, that you can experience violence. And how is that separate? How is that an antagonism to the violence that I experience? And how is it their fault? Absolutely. I mean, the problem is, I feel like I too, I'm on a continuous journey and I'm always doing this in public as well. It's always good to be in dialogue and, you know, think aloud through certain things. Because up until now, I was under the impression that radical, quote-unquote, radical feminism in all its various waves posited category of woman as always oppressed continuously and category of man. So when they say things like, as the oppressor, no matter what, and it never accounted for or for race or even class, for example. So when I hear things like, but, but the issue is I kind of felt that I didn't want to engage in reactionary takes because I found the people speaking about this and did it very, you know, <laughs> quite badly was the likes of Jordan Peterson. Yeah. You know, the reason why the world is the way the world is now is because men have been emasculated, you know, all that kind of nonsense. And I didn't want to get involved in that kind of stuff. But then I saw the things, okay, TJ Curry speaking about, and this might be a bit controversial, <laughs> but I do like TJ Curry a lot. But a lot of the time I do think maybe... Put it like this. If you judge the scholar by their adherence, you might not like the scholar. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, honestly, <laughs> I had a similar journey and I met, I met Dr. Curry and I told him, I was like, look, the first thing I did when I joined Twitter was block you. <laughs> you know, I was like, what, what are you, why is this person here? Like everything about, I knew about black feminism told me that you must be misogynistic, right? And I think yeah. this is the thing and I'm going to make this like really, really useful and critical intervention. If we judge anything by its mobilizations, by its worst types of 
by the worst types of people that we're gonna yeah. we're gonna get rid of all types of scholarships right we're both sort of True. like in the left umbrella which i problematize we're marxist if we were to be judged yeah. by the worst thing a white fucking reactionary marxist has said the problem and i think i i suffer from this too with engagement with thomas curry's work is that many people aren't actually reading him i've actually yeah. never seen someone take a direct citation direct quotation from his work and analyze it on the basis of what he's actually offering right you don't see that mm-hmm. I was being reactionary and my friend said, read the text. And I'm, I'm only sort of like three chapters in, but my yeah. God, has it shifted my perspective. He's not antagonizing wow. anyone. What he does oh, in wow. the first instance, as far as I've gone, is he problematizes the notion of gender. And guess who he uses to problematize the notion of gender? He uses Sylvia Winter, a black Winter, woman yeah. who's literally mm-hmm. been incredibly central to our, our ideas about how we even think about the project of humanism. Yeah. Right. He mobilizes Fanon sociogeny, which is an analysis that doesn't and rejects that essentializing thing that we do. Right. That pathologizing mm-hmm. thing that we do to issues like blackness and maleness and actually yes. says, let's think about how society produces, creates these sort of malleable entities. That's a much better and more astute analysis for understanding the conditions of black manhood than is engaging in a reactionary and actually racist. And like, that's the thing that was shocking. The category of gender, as we know it, is embedded in a racist logic. It's an embedded in a logic that is actually antagonistic to the subject of black manhood. Wow. Gender comes about through black women, I'm sorry, through white women's theorization of their experiences using the black man as the experimental tool. He <laughs> evidences this. And I swear to you, man, you need to pick up that man's book because it's a historical analysis. And we're Marxists, right? Historical analysis with citations, with empirical wow. evidence, right? And I sat there and I said to him, I was, I was really worried that this talk was going to have misogyny, but it had no misogyny. And this is the thing that was fascinating to me. Even the critiques of black feminism that people oftentimes blame him for doing, I don't mm-hmm. think that's what he's doing at all, okay. right? He's critiquing black feminist origins in a theory of gender that is inherently racist. And he's saying to them, if you care about blackness as a whole, yes. why aren't you more interrogative? Why aren't you more critical of the theories that you are mobilizing, that you're embedding within your politic, right? That's what he's oh, offering to yeah. him. He's saying, how is this okay, right? Like, how is this enough? Why aren't we open to thinking through even just this concept of gender and its racist and historical origins? Why are we so accepting mm-hmm. of it? And then it so makes then me I, then think yeah. back to our, our conversation with, with Dr. Joy James, who explicitly mm-hmm. said that she no longer, longer calls herself a black feminist because any any discipline any scholarship that becomes so welcomed by the state needs to be understood as what inherently castle, inherently problematic. Absolutely. So my question then to you then is, is it that the category of gender itself is defunct or we don't, or it's inherently antagonistic to blackness as a whole? Well, in the first instance, yes, because it has its origins in a deeply racist organisation <laughs> of society. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think once you see the evidence and the thing that was so profound is, my God, that man knows his theory and knows his history. And he was just throwing citations at us, like, and he was, <laughs> and he was quoting verbatim what these wow. white social anthropologists, you know, philosophers, social scientists, et cetera, et cetera, were saying. Mm-hmm. Like, he offered that to us, like, this is not me. I'm not saying this person is racist. They are telling you they are. 
read their words. Wow. And he actually mobilizes S- Sylvia Winter's notion of genre as mm-hmm. a far more useful analysis of what we what we think of as gender. And I've not gotten so far as maybe unpacking that, so I'm not going to kind of talk too much about it. But in, in just the origins of gender, I think we need to be more critical of, right? And especially the origins of gender kind of within the imperial core as an imperial tool in and of itself. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking here to a conversation I had with Yara literally just a few days ago in the DMs where we saw like a rad femme, I think, oh, <laughs> who was I a Marxist, that, yeah. whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, talking about essentially that, you know, like Palestinian men were irreconcilably yeah. just, you know, harmful because they were men. That, that, I feel like we have to be really careful of those types of politics because those types of politics are part of that sort of, you know, imperial imagination of what a racialized and colonized man is. Now, the Curry roots, has this yeah. fantastic, yeah, Curry has this fantastic sort of thing he said and it's literally stuck with me and I said the same thing to Yara and she was blown away where she was like well we have to think about the way sort of white womanhood or white feminists at the time came to conceive of a racialized patriarchy right in their Mm -hmm. articulations of patriarchy white patriarchy was a civilized patriarchy it was a good patriarchy right Mm -hmm. but racialized patriarchy black male patriarchy was deformed it was uncontrollable it was beastly Mm. So it should be more feared. Yeah. Right? So, okay, so the question, I'll just make a, a comment here, a comment here. So, again, I, I'm not, this is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I'm only, I think, since this podcast is to kind of speak on what's going on. Where do you stand now with the, the works of like someone like Bell Hooks then? So, I was hoping you were going to bring this up. <laughs> oh, sorry, know? I'm sorry. I was hoping you were going to bring this up because honestly, like, I could not, think of myself as a black feminist without crediting everything I knew to, to Bell Hooks, mm-hmm. right? Bell Hooks yeah. was important, foundational. One of the first books I loved was Yearning. Yeah. And the wildest thing about Yearning is Thomas, <laughs> Professor Curry literally provides this quote from Yearning, which was the most racist, most vile, most, you know, oh sexually essentialist brutally brutally violent thing i've ever read about black men in that and i literally just oh my, my heart God. broke <laughs> sorry and i can't remember <laughs> the exact quote but it was literally and i was like how is this okay and mm. he then showed us this quote from yearning in conjunction with something a white feminist had said earlier on oh, wow. and said so, do you see how this is literally just a copy and paste just a reorganization of the words pretty much a similar mm. similar instance but when we speak about gender-based violence, is there not a specificity that must be recognized between those who identify as men, those who identify, or those who are read as men, those who are read as women? So this is something that myself and Annie talked about, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to take gender on its own terms, then we cannot yeah. disentangle gender from the notion of patriarchy. We cannot okay. then disentangle patriarchy from the notion of the nuclear family, because actually, instead of this kind of reactionary assumption that patriarchy is simply the formation of a antagonism between male and female patriarchy yeah. is actually a system of organization around the family mm-hmm. right yeah <laughs> which is it's, it's, it's significant it's significant and it's significant because and this is another thing that we need to think about is that if we look at the notion of gender or we look at the notion of patriarchy under this lens of the nuclear family then we have to broaden how we think about sort of inter or the, the violences that happen within a sort of patriarchal family nuclear structure right mm-hmm. absolutely in and in, in almost any racial category you will tend to find that there is an over representation of women who are the 
victims of intimate partner violence and the men are being the perpetrators, right? That tends to be how this sort of thing follows. But if you stretch your understanding of patriarchy to include children, yep. and if we think about the difference, a similar difference we make in terms of the physicality between men and women and the power yep. imbalance between men and women between parents and children, what we find mm-hmm. in that instance is that women are oftentimes more so than even when we look at the sort of intimate partner violence statistics between man and woman, yeah. overrepresented in the categories of abuse against children. White women have the yeah. high... Yeah white women actually as a category as an as a as a grouping have some of the highest rates of violence against children Mm. but is there a politic we see mobilizing that deems white womanhood as inherently violent or antagonistic to childhood have you seen that yet Mm. no i haven't you're saying that patriarchy it doesn't care who reproduces it as long as it's reproduced exactly and so we need to understand the notion of sort of manhood as being a purveyor of that violence as simply a matter of categorization, simply a matter of power, not necessarily yeah. an essentialist, as is the Radfem doctrine, sort of position yeah. of men. And it's true because look what happens when you see like Afghanistan, for example. You saw it. Mm-hmm. Oh, think about the girls and the women. Think about the girls and think about the women. <laughs> women, right? Or, or imperialism saw... requires this analysis of patriarchy. The notion that imperialist feminism has to be understood as a project of colonization, racialization, and a project of patriarchy. But why do we mm-hmm. not see imperialist feminism as a project of patriarchy? If we understand patriarchy as a system of domination and rule embedded from embedded within a sort of capitalistic structure and embedded within yeah. white supremacy, how does imperialist feminism, liberal feminism, radical feminism not operate as an imperialistic tool, as such a patriarchal tool? Exactly. And then you get the takes that you mentioned earlier on when now, what's it? a Palestinian boy cannot be the victim of gender-based oppression because he's a man, even if the soldier at the IDF is a woman soldier. And I was like, like, I don't know, please help me unpack it. How do we get to this point? It doesn't make sense, right? Because like, if you take a lot of these analysis on their own terms, right, <laughs> they become completely illegible or they lie or they misconstrue when you want to stretch their own analysis. And this is the thing I have with privileged politics, right? Privileged mm-hmm. politics oftentimes assesses that within any given circumstance, right, someone has privilege over another, except when it comes to like a system in which there's a power imbalance between womanhood and manhood, and then the manhood yeah. becomes to blame, right? So let me give you an mm-hmm. example of this. In that talk as well, a friend of mine put their hand up and was like, oh, well, you know, it's because Curry mentioned the sort of like, specifically like the violence that young black boys face, right? The sex Sexual violence young black boys face and how yes. we need to understand it as a form of gendered violence right because black boys yeah. have a sexual debut which is oftentimes between the ages of i think it was nine to twelve right that's statutory yeah. rape in any other circumstance think right? about boosie my f- right exactly and then yeah well this is the thing and then my friend was like well but isn't it kind of men's own fault because Men oftentimes don't articulate their own experiences of sexual violence and sexual violence. They view it as this sort of celebratory, as this sort of mm. like, you know, emancipatory right thing, like as a show of yeah. a right of passage, a show of their manhood. And I was like, in what other category does a victim, not understanding that they're a victim, become mobilized as a privilege? Mm. How is that privilege? Wow. Right? So wow. we're theorizing young black boys, I'm not even talking about men, I'm young black boys over representation in the <laughs> instances of statutory rape as an effect of male privilege wow how is that not terrifying how does that not disgust us and then the thing becomes for me at what point that is a traumatized man or sorry a traumatized boy 
become a man and become irredeemable? At what point does his trauma, his childhood trauma, not become recognisable as a trauma in and of itself? At what point does his victimhood no longer become a victimhood? And who decides this? Mm. And that deeply troubles me. It's not even a but. I can hear what people might say. And, you know, because think about it, so far... All we've ever known, as, and you said that you prefaced it in the beginning of this uh, podcast, we've known, you know, women are the most oppressed, women are the, there's a system of patriarchy, and no matter where it's found, women are seen in the bottom. And, you know, again, and then we have, okay, there's some pushback against it. We had all the reactionaries talk about it, Jordan Peterson types, et cetera, et cetera. So now what would you say, someone who's, as your scholarship, I know you're interested in gender and blackness. What is your project now then? Is it that we have to just highlight the plight that black men go through? Again, I don't see that either being as a useful uh, project either, a useful endeavour either? Well, I think we have to be honest. We have to be guided by the material at any given instance. And we have Mm -hmm. to look at what the empirical data is telling us, right? And we have to allow for the recognition that a lot of these sort of liberal politics of sort of reactionary privilege discourse and identitarian politics aren't offering to us the deep messiness of the truth, Mm. right? Because the truth is messy. Because the real is messy, because the material sometimes isn't as neatly coordinated as we need it to, right? We have to do the work of understanding that part of engaging in an emancipatory politic is not allowing the simple to guide us, it's allowing and believing in the emancipation for everyone, right? Even if, even if black men are these irredeemable, which I completely disagree with, oppressive forces, what do we do with them then? Because what the state is doing with them is something we're we're apparently, you know, against as abolitionists because the state is incarcerating them and essentially eradicating them en masse. If you look at Mm -hmm. them in in the context of America, the black male life expectancy, and I think Rennie posted this figure, so you can probably like add sort of... Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, black male life expectancy in in the US is lower than men in freaking war zones. That should terrify us. Of course. That isn't saying that... You know, and, and I saw this tweet and I, I really started to think about just how we understand words because there's something about how we use language that's becoming incredibly meaningless. Well, black men need to be held accountable. How? And what is accountability to you? Is mass death not accountability? Is mass incarceration not accountability? And what is our politics, right? How is an emancipatory, mm. an emancipatory politic more concerned with people being accountable, which is an individualistic politic, than ridding the conditions that allow for all of these violences to exist? Mm. What I'm thinking about, though, this is a bit slight, slight, slight off topic, but it connects. Remember your tweet when people got so upset about the state yeah. taking people's passports? Honestly, away? that was my villain origin story. <laughs> <laughs> my villain origin story because i was already feeling a type of way and then the way people came at me i was like wait hold on hold on hold on i didn't say anything radical i just happened to include black men in there and people said the same thing they just did not specifically mention blackness so what is going on that was my villain origin story (laughs) at that point you said this is it i'm done Uh, this is all like pastoral feminism now (laughs) i was literally like black feminism is lost because it was black feminists coming or i don't think they're black feminists right because again you know, and you you saw this in my conversation with Joy. I'm still really trying hard to redeem this thing that was so central to who and what I am, right? I'm it's still trying this, hard yeah. to, to reclaim it. I was speaking to one of my um, mentors, Dr. Leila Brown. She's, she calls herself Pan-African Feminist, yeah? And and I was asking her the same question. Oh, do you think it's time to give up the label Black Feminist or 
pan-African feminist or however you want to label yourself feminist. She was like, no, she goes, why should we, and I think exactly what you were saying, why should we leave it for it to be cannibalized? Do you know what I mean? By mm-hmm. the neoliberals. So but where do you stand with it now? Are you trying to redeem well, it still? Are you trying I'm trying to redeem it because it means something to me, right? And I think within the Black feminist politics, there is still a politics of care. There is still a politics that thinks through womanhood in a complex way. And there is still a politics that has articulated the experiences of sort of Black familyness and, you know, what patriarchy means within the Black family. And so I said this to Corey, like, I'm not probably ever going to stop thinking of myself as a Black feminist because I think it's an inherently important politics for for a lot of people. But then my, my response to sort of Black male studies is that, Okay, I understand that people think of it as a reactionary sort of critique, but yeah. a lot of people who think of it as a reactionary critique maybe have not engaged with it. So for me, as okay. a good feminist, if someone says there's a blind spot within your theoretical analysis, there's a blind spot in the way you conceptualize the relations between men and women, I don't take that as an antagonism. The things okay. that Curry problematizes about black feminism sort of, you know, failures can be resolved if we choose to expand our analysis and, ex- and and choose to expand or engage with his source material with honesty and with a want to actually know more. Curry doesn't, mm-hmm. Curry isn't a reactionary. The man has read more feminist theory than anyone I know. Wow. No, simply like you can't, I mean, this is the thing that's mad. It's like, you can talk about people who not who don't read things and are antagonistic, and sometimes people's critiques are like, "Well, black feminism has said it." And he's like, "No, black feminism has said it, but it said it wrong." And here's why. And he's like, "Here's the empirical evidence. That's what he actually does. Here's the empirical well, then- evidence that shows that the thing that you're trying to say has a causal relationship, has a correlative relationship with the different phenomena, but you articulate it as having a causal relationship. And by articulating it as having a causal relationship, you've created this category of manhood that is irredeemable." Mm. I won't say any names, but then you know the discourse that that ensued after in you know, the recent one with our friends, our AP friends. But <laughs> what I did you make like of I that discourse? I have, a, I still, you know, I still have a lot of time for AP because my God, some of them write beautifully. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, no seriousness, dude. You're very fair, though. You're very fair. I gotta give you that. But carry on. Well, please. I think I try to take everything on its own terms, right? So if if mm-hmm. if Afro pessimism views itself as a meta critique yeah. and a specifically a meta critique of Marxism, then I should take it on its own terms, right? I think it does the job okay. of of critiquing Marxism not right because there are substantial critiques of Marxism that come from a black radical tradition and I think their critiques maybe do not line up as well as they think they do but then I'm allowing them to have that space and I engage and I read you know I read Borderson I read Spillers I read all these people because I've wanted to engage with what the actual base of the argument was Mm -hmm. same thing with Curry right I was being reactionary I was like you're a misogynist and my friend was like how are you calling something misogynistic without engaging with the source material and so I started to engage in the source material and I was like okay you are not actually antagonistic. You are just saying that you've missed something here and actually the conclusions you've come to don't always neatly apply. And I swear, like, it's bizarre, but he says it in the kindest way possible. He really does. Like, yeah, he oh, does. Really? He really does. He's actually so nice. Ask anyone who's ever engaged with him. I know lots of black women who have literally come out and said in their formations of their, like, development as scholars in times where they've even struggled someone i'm writing a paper with was like she was she's writing on black manhoods and she's using black feminism okay. and curry didn't tell her that she shouldn't do that he actually spoke to her and they engaged and like offered her citations and other things that she could use to develop her analysis but you know demonization <laughs> as, as always is the case on the tl anyway so ultimately what's the name of his book by the way so man not my god and it's and it's a really good god and this is the thing it's like you can't 
and this is probably going to be one of the con- most controversial thing I'm ever going. I'm going to say in the space. <laughs> I genuinely think within the field of sort of black scholarship, black philosophical scholarship, mm-hmm. I've not read work that has moved me like this since Fanon. And that's a big deal. I swear. I, know. I swear. <laughs> Just read the book. Read the book. Man Not by TJ Curry, yeah? Yeah, this is the end of my, <laughs> my black feminist anything. <laughs> but I swear to God, I swear. And I'll, I'm, I'm, I'll throw my hands up and say, I've not read work this good since Phenom. You hear that? You heard it here first. <laughs> and we were, I, I took a bunch of people to me to his talk and everyone left that talk shaken really shaken like what, what, the man what is what was it what was it like, what was it it's just like when someone provides you so much evidence and analysis yeah. that is like complex but accessible right backed up with evidence not antagonistic just saying if like just read this just read what this person is saying and now look at the evidence it's simple in the best way, right? It gets to the point and it's a wealth of evidence. And I think that's the thing that is really, really beautiful and wonderful about his work is that he doesn't just talk. Like, he's a trained epidemiologist. Do you know what I mean? Like, he looks at the Oh, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. The man, is, the man is a trained epidemiologist. Like, he looks at stats and offers you the analysis of the stats. And he's not just collecting this primary data. He's taking the data from the sources that claim to be sort of objective, et cetera, et cetera. He uses the same data sets that feminists often, or white feminists oftentimes use to argue particular positions and presents it correctly and offers a counter argument. And I think the main thing I left is that he didn't say like, I have all the answers. He says that it's actually not okay to pretend as if we have all the answers, that things are completely neatly, identifiable when oftentimes all you're doing is grouping a category to say to get a category of people together without understanding the context of the sort of like experiences or phenomena that you're trying to articulate and saying that well this is truth and he's like that's not true that's not actually science that's not anything that's just grouping people together and saying all these people think the same all these people behave the same that's not true yeah well, I'm just getting, I see it right now. The man not, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. People need to read it as Deej has recommended it. And if she's going on about, she, listen, she said he hasn't moved her since Fanon. I'm going to be putting that on Twitter today. But And, okay. and, it's, and now, honestly, because he uses a Fanonian analysis. Like he uses yeah. a sociogenic analysis, which is a Fanonian analysis, right? People will have you mm-hmm. thinking that Fanon's, theories are simply like a psychoanalytic theory but he goes beyond that and then especially his his articulation of black manhood like you know Fanon was a scholar of black manhood actually first if you want to you want to put all cards on the table and so to see someone do that work and be intellectually like just incredibly incredibly like the humility is outstanding but also welcoming to a position that a group disagrees with him welcoming and I even said I did the thing the same thing I did with with Joy where I was like can we save black feminism can we save or specifically and this is the thing his his antagonism isn't even to black feminism so much as it is to intersectionality as sort of how it's oftentimes thought of right intersectionality well like it fails on its own premise and it actually misconstrues the sort of complexity of the intragroup right like that's his analysis of intersectionality, thinking through its history, its genealogy within the disciplines it emerges out from, and also taking it on its own sort of like terms. Yeah. 
and in that like a lot of things people say they're doing that is intersectional is not at all in the first instance but an intersectionality in its actual own terms offers a sort of like critical analysis that it actually oftentimes can't truly engage in because of its need oftentimes to engage in a privileged politics that says you can analyze every intra-group within the community but if you analyze manhood and, and and you don't just ascribe manhood as privilege you're doing something wrong but that's mm. that's that's problematic absolutely with the kind of time that we have left and um, we can talk forever but i want to take kind of take it back to the basics that was again a masterclass. once again thank you I uh, hardly so a masterclass. No, <laughs> you need to get curry onto this i swear like I've, you... I've, have you got connected with him i do i have. can just i can dm him and like honestly like you need to because it will change it will I, I was just like, I just need to go. And I, I feel like I have to go and read all these black feminist texts again, right? I think Rennie is also a great person to follow. Rennie's been so, so, so like important in my own journey because I spoke to Rennie. And once I spoke to Rennie, I understood this man, because these people are not trying to antagonize anyone. They're just doing an analysis, right? We're scholars first. We're scholars, right? We're scholars, but yeah. also people that are concerned with the emancipation of black people. So of part course. of that work is doing that rigorous intellectual and critical challenging. I think any time a politic becomes a dogma, then we failed. Mm. The point and, and part of why I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, save black feminism is that black feminism shouldn't become a separatist or a neoliberal politic of individualism. Black feminism should not become dogmatic because black feminism isn't, isn't an identity. Black feminism or the kind of revolutionary black feminism that I'm concerned with is a feminism of emancipation. It's a feminism of, of liberation. It's a feminism that understands patriarchy as a project that conscripts us all into its logics and, con- and conscripts us all into its harms, right? We're all kind of guilty of maintaining mm. patriarchy because yeah. of what capital and because of white supremacy forces us to do. Mm-hmm. To say anyone who experiences the antagonisms of you know capitalist patriarchy benefits from it is is too simplistic you know or is it or benefits from it to the point of irredeemability when we look materially they are oftentimes one of the most dis- discriminated against the, the the ones met with the most violence i don't think it's i don't think it's a good analysis at all and i think we're gonna leave it there you know i had more questions yeah i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> no 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 no. it's not about time but you know it is i just i think i want to have you on again because i would love to do maybe like what a material analysis of gender even looks like as another yeah. separate episode but i know that can take a long time Whew. well thank you so much dj <laughs> i hope As everyone always. gets the book and everyone follow dj please follow ah, dj and, and also i'm gonna do a massive be too mad at me <laughs> don't be too mad ma- nah i'm too if old, you're mad at dj come and at me I don't even Come and at me. <laughs> Anyone's got beef with DJ, let them at me, yeah? I'm, I'm here and I'm the vanguard. <laughs> now, in all honesty, again, listen, DJ's a dope. Please, if you want to book her, hit her up, man. Hit her up. There's so much to learn. Thank you so much, man. You listen to the Malcolm Effect with Mama Do. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>